Thank you so much for that beautiful music. Music certainly has a way of encouraging, encouraging us on our walk, right? Lifting our eyes a little bit higher. I know that there's a reason why Paul sang in prison. And my inkling is that he may have been a little bit discouraged. But rather than letting that thought linger, he said, let's sing. And by the time the singing was over, it wasn't the same as it was before the singing. So thank you so much for that beautiful music. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today grateful for your goodness in our lives. And we ask that you would be with us now as we open up your word, as we look at some of the principles which are contained therein, how they can help our lives be happier for we know, Lord, that that is what you truly desire, for us to be happy. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So my title this morning is called A Philosophy of Parenting. And uh, this came about from a conversation a few months ago with Pastor Kelly and myself, where he said, it'd be good for me being a young parent on the beginning of my journey in fatherhood to share some of the thoughts which I was sharing with him at that stage so that, um, anyway, he encouraged me that I should put this down on paper. So I did, and, and it turns out that I now have an opportunity to share some of the things which I have. Now, I need to give some qualifications about what this sermon is about. It is going to apply to everyone, though I am mainly focusing this on young families, so families with young children, because that's where I'm at in my stage of life. And this is not going to be a sermon where it's like, I know everything, you know, this is, this is what you should do. I, I would never be so proud. This is more of a, my wife and my journey. Some of the thoughts that we had when we found out that Christina was pregnant, uh, when we had the child, and as we've seen Sophia grow, uh, there's a lot of things that you think about which before having a child don't necessarily come to the forefront of your mind. And uh, part of the reason I'm not going to be like, this is what you should do, is because I'm not going to be going into super specific details. And why? Because every child is different. And we would wish, even the Bible doesn't tell us specifics, right? We would wish, anyone who's been a parent wishes that there would be a little book that just falls down from the sky, right, when you have a child that's called the Manual for Sofia Stoyanovich, in my case, right? And it reads, you know, chapter one, when Sophia does X, Christina and Andy should do Y and Sophia will be Z and learn the lesson and everything will go perfectly and smoothly. Like, wouldn't we wish to have something like that? But we don't. We have instead the general principles which should guide us. But every child is different. Some things a child will grasp quickly. Other things a child will grasp more slowly. Some things will take a lot more effort. And anyone who has been a parent knows this. And so I'm not going to be going too much into this sermon on how it is that you are doing, which is why the title is aptly called A Philosophy of Parenting. What is the big picture of parenting? Why do we do it? I also want to say that the best made plans or the best laid plans without prayer, without Jesus, mean absolutely zero, right? We can have the best plans. We can have the greatest reasoning behind what we do and why we do it, but Unless Jesus is in it, unless Jesus is helping us, this will be of no worth. Jesus himself says, without me, you can do nothing. And I also don't want to, this is not supposed to be a discouraging sermon. It's supposed to be an uplifting and encouraging sermon. So I understand that everyone's background is different as well. Uh, some of us were raised Adventist in Adventist home with both, both parents. Some of us were raised in Adventist homes with only one parent. Others of us were not raised Adventists, but later became Adventists. And so I understand that everyone's, even from the parents' perspective, is different. And that, to some degree, does affect what we can pass on as well to our children. The another qualification, which is really important, is that you can do everything absolutely right, and your child still needs to make their own choices someday. Right? We know this. And this is not to be discouraging to us. We are not failures because... Our children do not decide on their own one day to follow God. We would wish that would be the case. But in the end, every child grows up and they have to make their own choice. And take a look at God, who is without doubt the best father anyone could have. And he still lost Lucifer. 
There was nothing more he could do, even though he reasoned with him, he tried, he held him close, he was right there next to him. Lucifer knew God better than anyone else, and yet he still chose to rebel against him. So there is a limit to even what God can do. I do want to uh, start getting into the message here proper now, and just before I begin, I want to quote this very short phrase, which maybe you have heard before. It's often attributed to Thomas Aquinas, the medieval theologian, but he is actually taking it and borrowing it from Aristotle, the Greek philosopher. And Aristotle said, one small mistake in the beginning is what? A big one at the end, right? If you make a small mistake in the beginning, and anyone who has done any kind of math in school knows, right? You forget the negative sign in front of the number. Oh, you end up getting that wrong in the answer. Or, or you wrote a minus sign where it should have been a plus sign or something like that. You forget one thing at the beginning and your solution is completely wrong. Even though the reasoning you did all the way through may have actually been sound because you forgot or accidentally didn't carry one number correctly, you end up with an incorrect answer. And so Aristotle here said one small mistake in the beginning is a big one in the end. What I'm meaning in this, you will see as I go through what it is that the mistake that I want all parents to avoid and which I'm hoping my wife and I will avoid as well as we go through. And it is mainly phrased around this one question. And it's the one that I raised a little bit earlier. And that is, what is the goal? What is the purpose or the end of parenting? Why do we do it? It's not just we have children, okay, now I'm a parent, but... Now I have a different role. Now I'm not just a husband, I'm also a father. Why am I a father? What has God asked me to do as a father that is different than being a husband? This is the question that my wife and I ask myself. What is it that I want my child to be like? If we were to describe, you know, the perfect childhood, if you were to say, to the growth from babyhood, let's say, through childhood, through the teenage years, and then all the way up to adult, what does that adult look like? Obviously, there are going to be differences, right? Different personalities and things. But what kind of characteristics would we want them to be kind? I think regardless of the personality, we would want everyone to be kind, to be polite, to be hardworking, to, to be caring, generous, giving to others. I mean, these are all good qualities, and we could probably spend the rest of the sermon just listing quality. So by no means is this sermon this morning supposed to be comprehensive. There are many, many more things, but I want to focus in on a few things which definitely stand out to me uh, personally and which I see in some degree, um, which I see in some degree is lacking more and more in the society that I find myself in. This very notion of asking the question, what do I want my child to be like, is very... As I explain it, you will see that to me it's almost a countercultural question. And let me explain that more. And that is what I see and what I hear from the world's perspective of parenting is that if you feed your child, you know, make sure they're, they're, they're thirsty, they're clothed, they're clean, they have a bed to sleep in, and you just provide an environment in which they grow, but all you're doing is taking care of the physical needs of the child you are doing your job as a parent. And when the time comes, you give them an education and so on and so forth. You send them to school, but then that's your role as a child. They are free to become who they want to be. And they will naturally choose to be the most upstanding, kindest, politest, most generous people in the world, right? The Bible tells me something a little bit different. The Bible tells me that the human heart is not just wicked, but desperately wicked. Who can know it? That we have the tendency, and you notice this especially if you're around little kids, to be more destructive than constructive, right? We tend to be wanting to do our own thing. Selfishness comes at a very early age because of sin. And what I see in the Bible as I read it is from what our scripture reading says is train up a child in the way that they should go. Training. Training is an interesting word, isn't it? We can train. Training implies that there's an event or, or something that you are moving towards. There's a goal to be reached. And depending on what that goal is, the training might be very different, right? So even if it's something physical, let's, let's use physical as, as an example. So I want to be able to bench press 200 pounds. Ever know what the bench press is? You, you lay down and you take the weights and you want to 
lift it up and put it down. So I want to be able to bench press too. That's a very physical thing. I need uh, greater muscles. Uh, or I want to run a marathon. Okay, that's very physical too. But the training required for each is very different. Okay, if you want to lift 200 pounds, you can bench press as much as you want. You may be able to get to 200 pounds. It doesn't mean you can necessarily run a marathon. And you can run as long as you want. It doesn't necessarily mean that one day, miraculously, you'll be able to bench press 200 pounds. You see the difference? Depending on what I'm training for, depend, what my goal is, depends on what training I'm going to use in order to achieve it and to get there. And it's important to ask ourselves the question when it comes to parenting, what is my goal? What kind of things do I want to achieve in the child? What kind of character traits do I want my child to have? And then what am I doing to encourage and to instill in my child those attributes? Am I doing everything I can? And that's why the how, the specifics might change. So maybe I try doing it this way and I see uh, that's not really working. So maybe I try a different how to get it there. And I may have to try five, 10, 20 different hows but my goal is not changing. My goal stays the same. The specifics might change of how I'm getting there. So hopefully I can see from your heads a few of you are, are nodding and saying you get that. Let me, uh, let me read you a quote here from Child Guidance. And I, I do want to encourage each and every one of you, particularly those of you with young families, We've mentioned a lot about the Spirit of Prophecy books in terms of education, but there are two for the home that are absolutely essential. My wife and I read Child Guidance once through when she was pregnant, and then when the baby was, was born early on, I think we read through it a second time before Sophia was six months old. Uh, it's, it's an important book to read. Child Guidance and Adventist Home, they're the two books. I highly, highly recommend these. This is what she says here in Child Guidance on this very point. Let fathers, mothers, and educators in our schools remember that it is a higher branch of education to teach children obedience. Altogether, too little importance is attached to this line of education. And notice this last sentence. This is the one that grabbed me. Children will be happier, far happier, under proper discipline than if left to do as their untrained impulses suggest. So this notion of the world of just take care of the physical needs and give them freedom and they will become happy individuals seems to not be what she's saying here. She's saying that really children are happier when they have proper discipline. And by proper discipline, she's not necessarily referring to consequences there. She's, discipline is another word for training, right? We discipline ourselves. What is a disciple? A disciple is one who disciplines himself. There's a goal that, that a disciple wants to reach and that's to be like his teacher, and so he's, dis he's not doing certain things that maybe he used to enjoy before. And he's doing things he doesn't enjoy. Why? Because his goal is to be like his master. And so he's disciplining himself. And that's what it means right here. This notion of training up a child. Consequences, again, going back to the how. Just, just a brief word on that because I don't want to mention too much uh, on specifics as I've mentioned before. But I'm going to use an example from my wife. When she was young, they would have a consequence jar. And it was really scary to my wife because it was a whole bunch of random consequences. Things like, you know, running around the house 10 times. If you, you know, if you do something bad, you ha you'd have to pick a consequence as a giant. You didn't know what you were going to get. Things like the next time the family has dessert, you miss out on dessert. Uh, picking rocks from the garden. I mean, a whole bunch of different things. Missing out on a special event that the family is going to go to or whatever that may be. There was a jar full of all these random consequences and you were trying to be on your best behavior because you kind of want to fish around and hope you'd get maybe picking rocks in the garden or, or running around the house and not missing out on dessert, right? So this is, this is a very creative way, I think, which may work in some instances, may not work in other instances, but I thought... We might have one of those in, in a couple of years. <laughs> but this notion that children are far happier when they have boundaries through which, in which they can express their freedom, uh, safety. And I want to raise this one question before I start going through a list of these, uh, these attributes or these, these general principles which I think uh, make for a good philosophy of parenting. Uh, is this one question... Is there a relation between the physical safety guidance which parents give to all children as they are growing and are developing and the moral safety guidance that parents should be giving? In a sense, 
Why do we not let two-year-olds play with, with kitchen knives like those sharp cutting ones? Why don't we do it? It's, it's, it's not a trick question. Okay, so, I mean, it's dangerous. I mean, the, the, the likelihood that they will hurt someone else or hurt themselves is extremely high. And it would be extremely negligent on behalf of the parent to let a two-year-old play with a huge knife that you use to cut watermelon, for example. I mean, this doesn't happen. So, so we restrict the freedom. Notice what I'm saying. You are restricting the freedom of the child by not letting him play by the road, by putting him in that car seat, which is so important, that has so many straps. I mean, so much more than an adult, right? Because you're concerned about the physical safety of the child, and you are right in doing so, and you're applauded by society. You're a good parent. You're keeping your child safe. But when it comes to moral development, oh, then you better not say anything. Right? Then you better not do anything because children will just naturally grow up to be morally upstanding. And this is not the case. What I'm trying to illustrate is that if we restrict the child's freedom because we, were, we are concerned for their physical maturity and development and safety, and obviously as, you know, I should think that virtually no 20-year-old needs to be told, don't go too close to the road. By 20, you should know what the road is and be careful in your, in your own sight. And it's the same thing with moral principles, with character qualities. We are to train our children so that they incorporate these. And of course, later in life, they will have to make their own choices, but they have that foundation. They have that education, which we have provided in the home to have that. So, you know, I think of an example of, of many times which I've seen in everywhere, virtually, when, when young families get together, they have a play date, the children are playing with the toys, and it's, you know, you're almost counting down the clock before it happens, between when one child snatches the toy from the other. How many of you have seen that? I mean, I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. Oh, there's been more than five people. How many of you have seen children play? Okay. Almost everyone should be raising their hand. They don't mean to do it. They're just selfish creatures that need to be trained, and they take it away. But what do we do as the parents? Will we say, oh, that was so funny, they didn't mean to do it. Will we make light of the situation? Will we use it as an opportunity to say, no, that's not right? Will we ignore it and hope it kind of goes away? Sometimes that's what we do as parents. We, we try like, well, let's not. And sometimes, many times it's not good to ignore. Sometimes I, I could think of some examples where, you know, Maybe there's too much going on and you can't address everything all at once. And this is an important principle as well. So let's get through some of these that I have here uh, written down. And, and um, one of the principles which I think is very, very good and which the spirit of prophecy repeats over and over again is particularly for young children, have simple, short, but often repeated phrases right? Children need repetition. You don't just tell a child once, don't lie, and they never lie again, right? You have to repeat it often and often and often and often, but it needs to be simple and short. You don't give them the entire discourse of, let's give you a Bible study two-year-old on why you shouldn't be lying and the consequences that, that can come out. You can do this later when you can reason with your child, and as they get older, they will learn. But when they're very young, you want something short, simple, and often repeated, and typically, I mention this because typically it's the parent who gets tired of repeating themselves. But the child isn't tired of having it repeated. Children love repetition. If you haven't noticed, um, you know, we, we read stories to Sophia and she has her favorite stories and she wants her favorite stories read over and over and over again. And we are very happy to do so. <laughs> We almost have them memorized because of how often we read it. But she's not tired of them. You notice what I'm saying? And it's the same. Sometimes you just need to say it a hundred times. And that 99th time, nothing happened. And that 100th time, it's like a light bulb went off and it's like they finally get it. I learned this from my wife, Christina, who teaches violin. And there are so many lessons to be learned from being a teacher and an educator, but she's trying to teach these little children all these technical details and she repeats herself over and over again. And some children get it in a week, two weeks, they go home, they just, the connection is made, they get it. Other times, the, the, maybe it's just the siblings, so they're in the same family, they practice hard, but it's just, it takes them months to get the same thing. And then something which was easy for one child, they move on to the next exercise and that next exercise is very difficult for them. So we need to repeat often and often until the lesson is learned. So 
Enough on that. Let's go to the issue of amusement. Open up your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes, which King Solomon wrote. And I want to spend a little bit of time in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, talking about amusement. Now, one thing we know about King Solomon was that he was extremely, extremely wealthy. And I'm not going to go through the first part of chapter 2, but I would encourage you guys to read it because there Solomon is given account of everything he was able to do, the musicians he was able to hire, the buildings he was able to build. I mean, everything that he was able to surround himself with, with the luxuries that he had and could afford at the time, which was a lot. And notice what he says here in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 2. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. All this was my reward from my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, on all the labor which I had toiled, and indeed it was what? Vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. In other words, Solomon is saying, I went out, I did all these things. Yes, it was fun in the moment, but when I look back on everything that I had done, it didn't bring me the happiness that I thought it would, that long-lasting happiness that I thought it would. And yet, he also writes at the end of the chapter, verse 24 here, he says, Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. So there's this notion of, it almost seems contradictory, but it's not when you look at it. Solomon is saying, I went to the extremes. I did everything my eyes you know, laid their eyes on and wanted to do. That's what I did. I didn't find lasting satisfaction out of them, but I did find some satisfaction in some things. And it's important for children to know that life is not just no fun, okay? We need to, as Adventists, I think, reclaim, particularly with our young people and children, the notion of you can be a follower of Christ and have lots of fun, and you don't have to do it according to the ways of the world, you don't have to go to the movie theaters and you don't have to get drunk and you don't have to do all these things to have a good time. There are wonderful ways that you can have a good time, fun times, laugh together and have fun with peers, with those older than you, with those younger than you, which doesn't, which doesn't um, involve you going after the ways of the world. And that's why when it comes to amusement, I think it's really important that parents have fun with their kids and show them what fun a good Christian life can be while at the same time putting all those restrictions in place which will make their lives so much better. So for us, uh, getting into a few specifics here, technology should be minimal. I know Pastor Kelly talks about that a lot, but it's true. That's why he's saying it a lot and he's repeating it a lot. Now, right now, the only thing we use our phones for is when we're FaceTiming with usually the grandparents on different parts of the world. That's the only time that Sophia really gets uh, with the phone. But I could see as she gets older, depending, you know, we, we had this pandemic that came out uh, early last year and VBS went online. I could see this as a good. The content which they watch online or in front of the screen needs to be carefully monitored. Um, but this notion of even that, there is such a thing as too much time on a screen. And so technology should be minimal. doesn't have to be excluded completely. Nature should be the wonderful book. And I mean, I could almost go till the end of the sermon just talking about all the benefits of nature, the exercise that children get out in it, the fresh air and sunshine. How many times do I remember being in Australia, Sunday, summertime, and we'd have breakfast in the morning, we'd pack the esky, which is uh, the cool box. I think you call it a cool box, right? Or cooler. Uh, put the ice cubes in, mum would pack a wonderful lunch, and we were off to the beach, the whole family. And I remember playing outside in the sand, getting sunshine, fresh air, playing in the water, and then I remember getting in the car on the way back home. And then I remember trying my best, you know, to stay awake. And I was just gone. And I remember a few times when I was a, a little bit older, not old enough that I could stay awake, but old enough where I felt bad that my dad had to keep driving to get home. Because I'm like, how does he do it? I am so tired. There's, we're going to have an accident on the road, but we never did. The next thing I remember, I, f I fell asleep in the car. The next thing I remember, I woke up in my bed. I mean, that's the value of exercise. You get that energy out. You get to see so much of God's creation. And that's what God created for us to enjoy. He placed Adam and Eve in a garden, even for adults to enjoy. How many of us enjoy watching the garden, going fruit picking, enjoying the taste of, you know, a wonderful peach? 
and so much more. Strawberries are in season now. They're fantastic. Anyway, uh, the other thing that Spirit of Prophecy counsels, which I think is really good as well, is few but durable toys. Few but durable toys. Why the durability? Well, when they're young, they, they can't learn the notion of that your actions have consequences in the sense that when you're older, you're playing baseball and the ball goes through a window and smashes a window. Okay, you can learn that you have to pay to replace the window later. But a two-year-old doesn't know what the notion of consequence is. So you want them to play with things which are durable, which do not break very easily. And the other reason is also you want to, again, remember I, I, I talked about how children naturally tend to display more destructive rather than constructive behaviors. And if you only allow them to play with things which are fragile, the child will suddenly get enjoyment from the fact that they can just absolutely wreck everything. And that's the fun of it. And mother and father do not have the pocket for that. So that is not good. Okay, what about the child's desire as they grow very early, and that is to copy their parents? Have any of you noticed this who have had children? They see what mama is doing or what daddy is eating, and, and they're like, that right there, that's what I want to eat. I want to eat the same thing. I want to do the same things that mom and dad are doing. So when we see that starting to develop in our child, why do we not capitalize on the situation and start doing the things that we can do with them. Obviously, starting small and growing. I, I'm going to use an example from my wife again, and that's that she tells me the story of when she was very young. She needed to have this step, step stool or ladder uh, where she would go by the kitchen sink because she saw that her mother was constantly washing the dishes, and she wanted to wash the dishes. So her mother let her wash all the cutlery. And so she would wash the, the forks and the spoons and, and her mother showed her how and she would do that and then she would go off and play and then her mother would go back and rewash all the forks and the spoons and those butter knives and things like that. Did it take more time on behalf of Christina's mother? Sure. But eventually it got to the point where Christina's mother wouldn't have to go back and rewash all the fork and spoons and the child felt like they were contributing something to the home. They felt like, yeah, I'm doing what my mother is doing and I feel valuable. And this should be everything. This means that, of course, on the parents, from the parents' perspective, we need to live what we preach, right? If we want our children to be polite and use manners, then we ourselves need to be polite and use manners because they copy not only the good things, right, but they copy all of the bad things as well. So if we want our children, for example, to be committed to the church and be involved in church, then we also have to display that same commitment and that same involvement. What about universal rules which apply both to parents and to children? I think this is a very important one. There are obviously rules which apply to parents or to children, I should say, which don't apply to parents. So at a young age, you know, the children cannot play with the knives. But when it comes to slicing bread, mom and dad, they can use the big knives and they can slice the bread and the watermelon and all those things. But there should be some sort of universal rules similar to what manners are. Manners should be respected by everyone. What about when someone is speaking, not interrupting them? This is a universal rule and something which teaches them not only later on in life to be kind and polite, but teaches them in the home where we should be our best selves. Uh, you know, I remember an Adventist home reading. This was before I was married. It was, it was a revolutionary point to me at that time, but I, I love it. And both Christina and I endeavor to do this at home, but home is supposed to be the haven. You don't behave however you want at home, but when you go out in society, you put your best self on. It should be that you put your best self on when you go outside, but when you come home, you should be even better, more courteous. This is your, your, your little place where you can be, where you can have a small reprieve from the world and from all the worries uh, that come from it. And some families might have different universal rules. There is some leeway here. Some families might say, leave the bathroom as clean as you found it. Other families might say, leave the bathroom cleaner than you found it. This is just one example, but you can make your own rules as long as they apply to everyone. It's important to have these. What about the value for property? We can go through a biblical example here of King Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. You're all familiar with the story? Naboth's vineyard was very close to where King Ahab was residing, 
And he wanted to purchase Naboth's vineyard, but Naboth wouldn't sell it to him. He said, this was my father's land. According to the Levitical Code, we are not to sell the property that belongs to our fathers if we didn't need to. And even then, it would only be sold for a certain period of time until the year of uh, release. And then it would revert back to the owner every seven years, back to the original owner. So you could not permanently buy a specific piece of land that did not belong to you. In the, according to the Levitical law. So King Ahab and Naboth, eventually he got what he wanted, but he did so through dishonest means, his wife Jezebel securing it for him, for him by killing Naboth. This notion of children don't need to touch everything that they see. Not everything is good for you. Some, some is dangerous. Uh, but to teach this lesson of being content with what you have. Do I know exactly how to do this? No You have to try different things. You have to work towards that goal. You cannot give up. But it's a very important lesson to instill as early as possible. Not being the center of life. I mean, this is is a big one. And what do I mean by this? Obviously, from the parent's perspective, the child is somewhat the center of life, right? Because you're thinking, particularly when they're young, okay, feeding, clothing, making sure they're clean is everything. Even when you want to do something ordinary like come to church. You, you can't just do it on a whim. It's like, okay, we have the, the, the diaper bag. We have a change of clothes just in case. We have, you know, all the, you, you have to plan and prepare. And so it seems from the parent's perspective that life is revolving around the child. But from the child's perspective, they shouldn't feel like they were born into this home and they have two wonderful slaves that do everything for them. Follow what I'm saying? We do a lot for her, but as she's growing, she's going to be contributing and doing a lot for us. She came to join our family. We didn't come to join her world. She came to join our world and the world in which we live. And that's a proper distinction, I think, that's important uh, to be made. Uh, When it comes to complimenting your child, this is definitely something that should be done. Children should be told often that they are loved, that they are cared for, but... What I, what I see sometimes is the case, and Ellen White even talks about this, is the things which they are complimented on often aren't the best things for them in terms of their development. When they say like a clever saying that they really shouldn't say, it's, it's semi-rude, maybe not completely rude, but it's funny because it's coming from a cute voice, from a cute face, and we laugh at it. What does the child think? Oh, I need to keep saying more things like that because I'll get attention from my parents. We should rather compliment on things which are more character-based rather than appearance-based or clever-based. I'm not saying you shouldn't ever compliment your child on looking beautiful, on, on looking lovely. Of course, that should be done. But, you know, I, I'm glad you didn't give up. When, when it got tough and we had to weed the garden and you were tired, you kept with it and we finished it. I'm glad you did that. That perseverance is really good. That's what they should feel a sense of appreciation and getting attention from. What about being a good sport? If we're playing a board game or something and they lose, do they storm out? Do they throw the pieces around or, or do they stay calm and say, that's okay, let's play another game, you know, let's play another round. I mean, that's being a good sport. That's something which should be encouraged. As much positive reinforcement as possible will go a long, long way. It doesn't always have to be, don't do the wrong thing, don't do the wrong thing, don't do the wrong thing. And when they do, there's some sort of consequence. Every time they do the right thing, be clap. Like, I, I can't remember how many times when you know, they're learning to eat and it's like, yay, she took the spoon in her mouth and she's actually chewing. I mean, you would think that fireworks were going off and it was the 4th of July in our house and all she did was learning how to chew. Do we do it like that now? No, now she knows how to chew. But encouraging the positive things you want a child to have is far, far better than doing the negative. Okay, last point here. And it's probably the biggest one again, but I am going through this quickly. And that's what about having a walk with God, which is probably the most important attribute you want to not only not only mimic, you know, be an example of in the home, but is also something you want your children to grasp. I think that it's very, very important that children not feel like God is only part of their lives before a meal when you have prayer and just on Sabbath morning. If that's all you do with your child and you're expecting them one day to grow up and they're going to be dedicated to God and they're going to go on mission trips, I think, you know, you may as well flip a coin. 
because there's probably a 50-50 shot that they will and that they won't. It's probably less than 50%, but I'm trying to be generous here. If that's all that you do, and that's as far as spirituality goes in your home, then just coming to church for, you know, and nowadays you don't even come to Sabbath school, you just come to church. So many families are doing this. You just come to church, you don't even go to Sabbath school. This is a mistake in my opinion. Uh, family worship in the home is absolutely crucial and it shouldn't take very long. No one likes a long, long family worship. At the beginning when we started with Sophie, when she was very, very little, we literally, we got a guitar and I learned how to play guitar. The only problem is I can only play a few children's songs on the guitar, but I do know a few chords on the guitar. It was fun. We played a few songs, that was it. We prayed at the end of those songs, that was our worship. Now she's old enough this is what our worship is right now. It takes probably about 10 minutes, maybe, maybe less. We sing one hymn, one of six hymns, because I only know how to play six hymns on the piano, but we do all of the verses. So we sing one hymn, we pray, we read a story. She has uh, these, I think it's called My Bible Friends or something like that. Right now, her favorite story is Elijah. And she goes, la, 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 la. Like every time we say worship, she wants the story of Elijah and the time of no rain. And... Uh, and then after we read the story, we have prayer, and that's it. That's it. It takes us probably about 10 minutes, maybe less. Sometimes it's probably eight minutes. But it's, it's simple. It's fast. We do this in the morning. We do this in the evening. The purpose of family worship is to be quality, right? Not quantity. You don't need a half hour, an hour. To be honest, when my children are older, I'm not sure that I want family worship to go for an hour. That's too long. 20, 15, 20 minutes is probably all that is needed every morning and every evening. It's the chance to realign yourself with God, to give you something to think about as you go about your mundane tasks, which you have to do anyway, as you're driving to work. Oh, we, the scripture passage we read this morning was on this. What is it saying to me? This is the purpose, to, to lift our thoughts towards heavenly things and not to be so focused on the things of the world. And this is something which is going to change as the child grows and develops. Sabbath school, you know, I, I probably most of you that are older as well, who grew up Adventist, probably don't remember a time where you didn't go to Sabbath school. Am I right? It was just a way of life for you. It wasn't a great sacrifice. You just, as far as I can remember, I've always gone to Sabbath school uh, as far back as I can remember. And that's just life. Wouldn't it be nice if we could raise our children that coming to church for Sabbath school, for church, being involved in church isn't a sacrifice, but it's just something you do. It's a normal part of life. This is what we want to work towards. And I, I just to tell you a little bit of, of a story of what it was like for me growing up in an ethnic church in Australia from former Yugoslavia, and some of you here are from those parts, so you will, you will be able to resonate with what I'm saying, but we had church on Sunday evenings. There was, a, there was a church service. There'd be the prayer meeting on Wednesdays. There was a Friday evening service. There was the Sabbath morning services of Sabbath school and, and uh, the, the main uh, worship hour. And then uh, there was also the Vespers program. Every single week, there were five sermons from the pastor that he had to preach on all of those. Sometimes it wasn't always the pastor that was doing the preaching, but five events at church and little by little you know let's take the Sunday one out let's take prayer meeting out let's take the Friday evening service as the years go on and now it's just the day on Sabbath and now even that's becoming too difficult for some people when I go back where is our notion of you know sometimes I wonder if if we had to suffer for our faith I wonder if we wouldn't be more zealous to come and meet with each other. Those early Christians who were persecuted for their faith, can you imagine how relieving it must have been for them to come to someone's home and to hold the worship, to be around friends who were like-minded, who they, who they could talk about Jesus without the fear of, you know, is this person going to turn me in or not? Uh, it would have been a, a haven from the world. But in a country where we live so free... It seems like, well, I'm free to do my own thing. I don't really need church. We think of ourselves as rich and in need of nothing, and we do not see that we are poor, naked, miserable, and blind. The involvement in church, I remember from a very, very young age, I had to sing up front, uh, which is very, very good, in a, in a group, not by myself, praise the Lord. One thing I did have to do by myself was recite scripture. 
So like similar to scripture reading here, and uh, I have, I don't know if I'd say a funny story or embarrassing story. It depends where you sit. From my perspective, it was not a fun story or funny story, but I was given uh, the verse in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. I had to memorize this and then recite it. It was a Sabbath afternoon program. And uh, I'll read it in the English. It says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave and be strong. And uh, it got time, you know, a few other children went before me and then it was my turn to go up front and I didn't want to do it. And I was kind of like making a fuss about it. And my mother gave me that look, which I know what that look meant. That look meant, you know, if you don't do this, we're going to go outside and we'll have a conversation that will leave a, a, an impact. Uh, and so I was like, okay, okay, okay I'm, I'm going up because I, I didn't want to have that conversation. And I went up, you know, holding the microphone and I, I said it. And what you need to know is that the, the, the translation for being brave in, in Serbian, in the translation is, is sort of like, a, hold yourself like a man. It's mushki se držite. That, that's the phrase, but it's like, Mushki is men, like, hold yourself, be brave, like a man. Uh, and so I started the verse, and it went well until I got to that part, and then I started crying, and I started saying, Mushki se like, hold yourself like men. And my mother repeats that story so many times. Uh, but those little steps help make me into the person I am today, so that I don't have to cry when I get up here. And I'm not saying everyone has to go up front, but the notion of... I don't come to church just to sit down and have everything done for me, but where is my little spot where I can help? Can I help in a children's Sabbath school? Can I help upstairs? Can I, can I contribute somewhere other than coming, sitting, and, and giving my, returning my tithes and offerings to the Lord? There is something more, and there is something for everyone to do. And the earlier we start doing that, the easier it becomes as we get older to just feel like this is a way of life. I want to read you... Uh, a quote here, again from Child Guidance, and it is, uh, was very sobering to my wife and myself when we first read it, and that is, few parents begin early enough to teach their children obedience. The child is usually allowed to get two or three years the start of its parents, who forbear to discipline it, thinking it is too young to learn to obey. But all this time, self is growing strong in the little being, and every day makes it a harder task for the parent to gain control of the child. At a very early age, children can comprehend what is plainly and simply told them, and by kind and judicious management can be taught to obey. The mother should not allow her child to gain an advantage over her in a single instance. And in order to maintain this authority, it is not necessary to resort to harsh measures, a firm and steady hand, and a kindness which convinces the child of your love will accomplish this purpose. But let selfishness, anger, and self-will have their course for the first three years of a child's life, and it will be hard to bring it to submit to wholesome discipline. Its disposition has become soured, its delights, it delights in having its own way, and parental control is distasteful quite a sobering thought. It, she doesn't say it's impossible to change it later, and I'm not trying to be discouraging in any way, but we need to pick what is our goal? What am I going to work towards? One step at a time. I think that is really, really important because there is one thing we can say for sure, and that's not having a goal is a sure way of reaching it, right? If I don't have a goal, if I'm not trying to bench press 200 pounds or, or run a marathon, then I can almost assure you I will never be able to run a marathon, because if I don't have that goal, if I don't push myself, if I don't train myself, I won't get there. And by the way, the same thing applies. Lest you think that this is, this is only a, a sermon for those, for those who have young families. And since I don't have a young family anymore, I am, I am uh, free from this sermon. No, it works the same in our lives as well, right? What is the character quality that we may be struggling with? Do I have a quick temper? Am I, am I sometimes quick to be rude or frustrated? How can I work on making that less and less? Let me try something. Let me, you know, Ellen White says, if you feel that your temper is coming, go out and chop some wood. Do something physical. Get that frustration out and then come in. It's hard to be angry when you're tired, right? When you don't have the energy. 
Uh, it's very hard to be angry when you do that. So what kind of things are we going to use to train ourselves, even as adults? Now we have to take on that mindset. There's a really, really good quote in your bulletin, which I'm not going to read for the sake of time. At times, we will all feel discouraged. What I mean by that is we'll all come to the point where we have tried everything that we can think of and it's still not coming the way that we want to. And we just, we feel almost like giving up. I want to encourage you, don't. Don't give up. We have to keep striving for that goal. We must keep pressing upward and striving forward. Another good thing that I want to end it with here is don't be afraid to ask for advice from people that you know, that you trust, and that you know will give you godly counsel. Talk to your parents. Talk to your grandparents if they're still, if they're still alive. Talk to people who you know and trust and say, you know, I'm trying to teach my child the attribute of, of sharing with others. What are some ways that, you know, I've noticed your children share nicely. What are some things that you tried? Maybe they give you something and you're like, oh, I tried that already. That's, you know, it's fine. It's not working. But maybe they'll give you an idea and say, well, I haven't tried that. Maybe I'll try that. And maybe that won't work and you'll have to ask someone else. But you, you see what I'm going towards. If there's anything that you forget in this sermon, you will not forget that you must keep striving towards the goal. That is the main purpose of this sermon. Try new things, but remember don't take away from the target. In other words, you can, you can come up with a different way of the how, but you don't want to lower the bar and say, oh, she did it, that's it, she's got it, you know, or he's got it, and now I can stop doing it. No, 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 no. You have to be vigilant. Parenting stops when your children are 18, right? <laughs> no, we know that is not the case. But the only way to, to secure failure to, to be absolutely sure that you will fail is to give up. As long as you're not giving up, as long as you're striving, as I mentioned before, you may have to repeat yourself 100 times, maybe 200 times, but one day the child will know. And in the, in the moment they might say, you know, uh, I, I don't like you. I know I said that to my parents. Why do we do this? I don't understand. And now I find myself doing the same things that they didn't understand why. And it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating because they were right. And I wanted so much as a child to be right. But... Years give you, give you wisdom. Jesus is our best friend and he is our ablest helper. Let's continue asking for him to be our help and guide, not only in our lives personally, but also in the lives of our young children and older children as they grow up, that God would be there with them every stage and at every stage of their lives. Our concluding song is one that probably many of you have never heard before, uh, so we are, I'm going to ask the pianist if the pianist could play through uh, the hymn once all the way through. It's number 542, Jesus, Friend So Kind. And then as the piano goes into the second time that uh, they're playing the verse, I'll inv invite our musicians to come out. They'll lead us. And it's only two verses long, but it speaks so much to what I spoke about this morning. And it is so true that we need to continue asking wisdom from God above who, as James reminds us, has lots of it and is willing to give liberally to those who ask of him.
Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you to give our children and ourselves into your hands. We know, Lord, that you are the greatest father of all, and we need your help to be good fathers, be good mothers ourselves, to be good examples in our homes, in our workplaces, wherever we may find ourselves. Father, I pray here at church, may may we seek ways in which we can get involved, ways that will uplift your kingdom and will will play a part, will not only help us to grow to be more kind and giving, but will also encourage others to do so as well. I pray, Lord, please may your Bible, may your word, may the spirit of prophecy be such a comfort to us, particularly in the days that we find ourselves living in. There is so much light. There is so much sound wisdom there, Lord. Help us to understand that the choices we make each and every day do have an impact that at the times when we are discouraged, Lord, may, may heaven come into our hearts and may we realize the grand hope that we have and the purpose for which we do everything we do. Parents sacrifice a lot. And there's a reason for it, Lord. You sacrificed more than we ever can. And there's a reason you sacrificed as well. Help us to live in a way that is worthy of that sacrifice. And Lord, be with the hearts of our little children, Lord, no matter how old they are. Work in their lives, Lord. Work in ways that we cannot at times. Help us to know when to say the right thing, when not to say anything at all. Lord, I pray that you would bring our family, all of our families, back into a knowledge of who you are. And may we all be ready and waiting when you come in the clouds of glory to take us home. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated.